everyone welcome back to another episode of life's about a song second chance theater where we recover a topic but with a new guest i'm your host john and with me today is a super special bestie of the pod who's going to murder me with laughter it's matt Coplick, everyone and i'm gonna turn you into a pie of fierceness yes i'm gonna die of laughter either through this recording or whilst editing it uh (laughs) Matt, how are you? How are you doing? Been a minute. I'm doing I'm doing well. Thanks, John. Yeah. Uh I've I've been on a real reading kick lately, which has made me feel very civilized. Unfortunately, the book I've been reading is trash, but it's been so much fun to read. How are you, John? I'm doing well. We're doing podcasting still. Yay! <laughs> and we're here to podcasting. Well, and L- we're here listen- to- I I admire you because you every week, sometimes twice a week, have episodes out. Me, I do my mini series, and then I'm like, we'll be back in two months. Then it's like, actually, we're gonna be back, we're gonna be back in three. Uh, I every time I'm like, we're starting up again. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna buy myself another week. It's just a it's, lot of work. So it's a congrats, bi-weekly to podcast, two episodes a week. Always fun editing them the day before. Mm. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here today to recover. Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, the 2007 Tim Burton movie. <laughs> Sweeney. Sweeney. Sweeney Todd. Previously, we uh, we did this as episode number 68 with uh, guest Kevin Young, uh, also for Spooky Season. So happy halloween time, everyone. Woo! Uh, we need a Sweeney Todd starring uh, David Pumpkins. Yes. Okay, so you've seen the show, I'm assuming. Yes, I have seen. I have seen the show to this day. I still have not seen the stage version, and I am kind of proud of that. But not really. okay. So I'm glad you said that because I was going to bring that up. Unlike my last two second chance uh, appearances, did listen to the first chance of this. Uh-huh. movie on your podcast all the way through whereas the last two i definitely pick and chose but i listened all the way through and i wrote down notes and one of the things i wanted to ask was how much more familiar were you with the stage musical now but it seems not much still still not sorry okay. i i'm, I'm kind of interested to see this production of it but there's just something about josh groban that doesn't well, read we'll, we will gab we will gab uh, yes, because I, so I have seen two Broadway productions. I've seen the most recent right. one. I've seen the John Doyle one where Patty played the tuba. I saw it at Lincoln Center oh. with the, yeah. I saw it at Lincoln Center with the Philharmonic where Emma Thompson was Mrs. Huh. Lovett. I saw it in the pie shop downtown. That's twice. the one I wanted to see, and I'm kicking myself still. To, there's a few shows that have happened that I am yeah. angry with myself for not seeing, and that is one of them. Like, yeah. The, I've also listen. I've also watched the video of Angela Lansbury and George Hearn. I've watched the video of Patti Lapone and George Hearn. Uh, of all the stage versions I've seen, either filmed or live, the Pie Shop is far and away my favorite version. Uh, so, I yeah. have a question about Mrs. Lovett. Yes. 
Okay, so I re-listened before we started to uh, My Friends. And in it, she has a line where she talks about that she always had a had like a crush on. Always had a fondness fondness for you, you, I did. did. So she knew the Barkers prior to. Yeah. All of us. Because she she, the pie shop was always below them. uh, And she was essentially their landlady. uh, Okay, okay. So because it. I don't think they put enough emphasis on the fact. I mean, it seems like it's just one there's line. No, nah, there's a, there's a little bit in there. The whole stuff with Lucy at the beginning, it is made very clear that Lovett was there when it all happened. Because then when Benjamin Barker slash Sweeney is like, where's my wife? She tells him, uh, you know, she poisoned herself. And she says, right. I tried to stop her, but she wouldn't listen to me. So like, Lovett was in their lives it's also why she's the only one who actually recognizes sweeney when he comes back it takes her a minute but she recognizes him because she was the only one who was around him for a long period of time before he left and also because she always sort of was obsessed with him and definitely thought that like she should have been with him and not lucy when he came back, like her brain was already on that. That's something that you and Kevin talked about in the episode. It was like, why is it that no one recognizes him? First of all, fifteen years is a long time. Uh, none of them had photographs of him, and, and now also he I has think the gray streak, so they can. It, he's a totally different person. He's so much paler now. Come on, he's practically a new ethnicity, he's, and he's Tim Burton white. Yes, you're right. Yeah, but but also I think it's a commentary on because Pirelli doesn't even really recognize him. Pirelli recognizes the razors. The razors, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, no one else recognizes him, and I think it's purely because like they've stopped thinking about him. Like the Judge and the Beetle have not thought about Benjamin Barker in years. They probably haven't thought about Lucy in years. Like in their mind, Joanna is now a separate entity, and that mm-hmm. comes from sort of their own fucked up privileged mentality and just like sociopathic behavior. I love this movie. And I do I, too. Okay, great. Because as somebody who has actually seen the stage version, and yep. I'm assuming you've done it on the Broadway breakdown? I have. It was the uh, first series I did uh, when the show got rebranded was a Sondheim series. So we right. did do a two and a half hour episode of Sweeney Todd with my friend Justin Mendoza, who is the music director over at Book of Mormon. And he came in with a notebook full of thoughts. Well, because there are people who are theater people who don't like this movie. And I'm like, I understand your viewpoint. But as somebody who is viewing this as a movie, and also I don't really have a strong emotional connection to the stage version, Mm -hmm. I still like this. I like what they, they, the music sounds a little creepier than, uh, because I have listened to the um, cast recording of it. And there's just some, I mean, I think they got the music right in the movie. Watching it this time around, though, I really was hating on the filters. <laughs> the film filters? Yes. Okay, we'll get into that, because that's actually something I really do like about the movie, is how okay. how literal dark it gets at times. Uh, but but I digress. We'll move on from there. Okay, the so... About, the thing about oh, Sweeney yeah. Todd, um, it is very much one of those, like, holy grail shows for theater people. Uh even people like myself who did not necessarily love it 
at first have grown to love it, you know, recognize its brilliance. And then just like the fervor around it is pretty intoxicating. I've yet to meet anyone who's a theater person who doesn't like Sweeney Todd, the musical, purely because they think it's not good. If they don't like it, it's because they're more annoyed with other theater people's adoration of it. Or they've seen a mediocre production. The thing about the movie is... I agree with you. So I'm like, I feel like I'm a rare theater person who loves the stage show and also think this movie slaps. Uh, The thing is that like, it's not a good representation of the stage show, but it is a pretty fantastic movie on its own. And that is what's ultimately the most important. Because at this point, we now have three filmed recordings of the stage show. We have the Angela Lansbury, George Hearn recording. We've got the staged concert with Patti LuPone and George Hearn. And we have another staged concert with Emma Thompson and Bern Terfel. I'm like, how many more documentations of the stage material do we need for people to let this movie go and be its own thing do we not have a a stage recording of the john doyle production or am i thinking I mean, it's, at, it's at, no it's at lincoln center yeah company is the one that got filmed uh, for yeah. commercial purposes uh yeah you can go to lincoln center and watch that but yeah it's not okay. made public it's i think the bootleg might be online though uh as is a bootleg of the original production with len Carew and angela lansbury The other thing about Sweeney Todd, the stage show, and why if your introduction to the movie was, sorry, if your introduction to it was the movie and then you listen to the cast recording, it is something you kind of do have to see on stage to appreciate it now uh, because you're Mm -hmm. used to a more intimate, quiet, creepier story. And the stage show is definitely creepy. There's a lot of thrill and horror to it, but there's also a lot of grandeur and humor and uh, broadness to it. And a lot of emotion and uh, and whatnot and theatricality. And it's really hard to nail it perfectly on stage. It's hard to fuck up totally. There's too much good there to have a production that totally shits the bed, you know. But I find too many times productions will lean too heavily in one thing or the other. And not enough uh, of everything else that that show offers gets a good deal. For example, the most recent production, should you decide to see it, uh, it is big. They have a large ensemble that sings beautifully. It's got a big orchestra that sounds like it's a million miles away. Uh, <laughs> Holy shit. Okay. When they won, when they won sound design at the Tonys this year, John, the number of people who flooded my DMs and said, are you okay? <laughs> and I said, why are you worrying about me? Because the worst sound design of the year just won the Tony Award. Listen, there have been some questionable Tony wins in the past. This is just at the top of the list for me. But anyway, the thing I don't like about this current production is how safe it is. They lean so heavily into the humor of the show. Everything is so broad and safe in that respect. There is also almost no blood. There is more blood in the poster for Sweeney Todd than there is on stage. How can you not have blood when you're doing Sweeney Todd? Well, how can you not have dirt either? Everyone in the current Broadway production is middle class. Huh. Yeah. Oh, also, wait. uh, This also brings me to another point I wanted to say. So I rewatched the movie for the umpteenth time this weekend for this episode with my mom, who had seen it a few times as well, but not for many years. And she said something that reminded me of a little intel I got about this production that's currently playing at the L'Enfantan. So we're watching the movie and my mom goes like, how is it that no one notices anyone's missing in this small town. And I went, small town? It's London. There are a million mm-hmm. people here. Like, wh- something that Tim Burton does very kind of in a nuanced manner, which is 
a word you never usually associate with Tim Burton, but he does very kind of subtly imply that like in this London, no one notices anything because it's just like business right. as usual. Why would I think that's anything but a pie shop or a barber shop? Like, why well, would I notice if like that guy I ran into on the street yesterday, like is missing or like, or my coworker? I don't know. I don't care. I'm doing my own thing. And something I want to say, and then we'll move back to the movie. I got Intel that a person in the ensemble of Sweeney Todd was getting their costume during tech. And they had been told before they got their costume that their character in all the ensemble scenes was the town prostitute. Then they get their costume and they're like, this doesn't look like a town prostitute. This looks like a school marm because everyone looks like they're upper middle class. And I went, here's the thing that bugs me about this. What do you mean the town prostitute? The town is London. There are 10,000 prostitutes. This is not Bell's poor provincial town in Beauty and the Beast, a town of 50 people. This, <laughs> this is, is lovely London. ladies. <laughs> this is, it's literally like saying, oh, the town baker. I'm like, the town baker? <laughs> well, so to go back to what your mom was saying, they even say multiple times that they are going for people no one will miss. So like they are assuming yeah. that they are single because you see all of them and uh, especially in the Joanna reprise is what I'm talking about. Yeah. You see all the, the montage of him killing people, but then there's that one that has the family there. So he's like, I guess I'm not going to slit your throat. <laughs> exactly. No witnesses. It's the, the montage definitely implies that he's kind of just doing it at a moment's notice. And then love it does say in the next scene, like we pick and choose who we right. murder people who won't be missed drifters, things like that. So we just kind of have to take it at face value that, they're aware of who it is they're killing. It's also, you know, in a movie, you don't get the luxury of time like you do on stage. So one would have to believe that maybe not everyone who's coming into Sweeney Todd's tonsorial parlor is getting murdered on their first visit, most likely on their second or third. Once Todd and Lovett have learned like, oh, what is it? Did you do? Oh, you're one of 10,000 in a factory. Oh, you've got no living family. Got it. Goodbye. And then yeah, my other exactly. thing is That's like, we kind of have to assume that the other thing I was wondering was, do they then also just like take their money and everything? And yeah, waste not yeah. want not. That's right? what the bitch says. But, uh, but also, wait, what did I write down? I during the Joanna reprise, I wrote down Sweeney must go through a lot of shirts because of all the blood oh. that gets. <laughs> yeah. Oh, all the blood that goes everywhere. Cause you everywhere. see it and it gets all over his sleeve and on his collar and face. And I'm just like, Oh, I don't think they know the spit trick back then. It's yeah. very Kill Bill. Love it clearly knows how to get sh- stains out. You know, I think that's also <laughs> right. that's probably how she was able to afford living all those years when the Barkers were no longer renting the apartment upstairs. She uh, knew how to get those stains out, if you know what I mean. Mm. Listen, with Helena Bonham Carter's tits, nothing is off the table. Wasn't she pregnant during this filming? This she got pregnant during got this. Got pregnant. Okay. Yeah, the, this is the, right. Also, right before her breakup with Tim Burton. Not right before. It, it was a few years later. I think they broke up. Okay, so but like it was before this. I'm sorry, this happened before. I mean, like oh they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like so, you know, they were they, still t- very much together. They were still very much together. Uh, the story goes that basically he was really hard on her on set, and I think there were a lot of reasons for that. One was that he was very passionate about this movie and he really wanted it to be good. 
for many reasons. He liked, he really loved the stage musical. This was a passion project of his. He really wanted to be taken seriously with this movie. He already was feeling self-conscious that Helena was playing Mrs. Lovett because he was afraid people were going to think it was nepotism. So he really like put her through her paces and they basically would like fight on set, do the takes, go back to their hotel and fuck like bunnies and, and have angry sex. And yeah, ex- like <laughs> truly like I hated how you spoke to me on set. Let's fuck. And then somehow got pregnant from that. Uh, and she's, she has said in interviews, like you can tell basically like when the sperm met the egg in this movie. Cause she's like, there are, <laughs> they shot it out of order. She's like, there are scenes where my boobs are balloons. And she's like, that is when I was like three weeks pregnant. <laughs> um i i didn't ask you this but now i'm gonna ask you why did you want to recover this topic so this is actually fun fact your first episode of this was the episode that got me to notice your podcast i don't know how i i know blush i don't know how it happened but i what? saw it i was like oh let me listen to two people talking about it and at the i remember being frustrated at the time with the episode listening to it today i don't find it frustrating you guys did a good job um Plus you got to know me over the yes, last exactly. however many years or whatever yeah. we've known each other. But so. it was enough to make me reach out to you and be like, hey, John, if you ever want to have someone who really knows what they're talking about, have me on. And then I proceeded to make my first episode, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. Uh, but... <laughs> Listen, oh, that is a gift from the baby Jesus. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm aware. The season is almost upon us. As soon as Halloween is over, you better believe Christine Bransky has got to get out of this town is going on loop in my home. But <laughs> Christine Bransky, fun fact, played Mrs. Lovett at one point. I believe that. Yeah. That a production. Sense. Yeah. A production at Kennedy Center with Brian Stokes Mitchell. And then I think she also did it in L.A. with Kelsey Grammer. But don't hold me to that. OK. But yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to do this episode to sort of bring it full circle. That's why. And also, this is a movie that I hold very dear to my heart. And I feel like I'm one of the few theater people who love the stage version and the movie version and right. can defend the movie version and a lot of its choices. And I, w- I would love to be that person for you. Okay, so you said that you re-listened, you took some notes from yes. the first episode. What are some things that you want to either answer or correct live on this recording? Uh, so first of all, Imelda Staunton was not up for Mrs. Lovett for the movie. She played Mrs. Lovett in the West End. Got it. Okay. Kate Winslet was up for it. Tony Collette was up for it. Tony Collette supposedly got very, very close and then didn't book. This movie has basically been in, was in development for 20-ish years. Yeah. There were many different yeah. directors attached, many different actors attached. The closest it got before Tim Burton was Sam Mendes was going to do it. And that was the one that was either going to be Kate Winslet and Russell Crowe or Tony Collette and Russell Crowe. And then when it changed to Tim Burton, Tony Collette sort of had to go through her paces again and then lost out to Helena Bonham Carter. Honestly, I'm here for any of those names. I know people don't like Russell Crowe because of Les Mis and everything, but like he's now playing Sweeney. We can just, yeah. we can, ooh, we can now justify his singing well, voice. Yes. The thing about my hot take about Russell Crowe is I don't actually think he's a bad singer. There's a video you can watch on YouTube about the process of making Les Mis the movie. And he did a stupid thing that everyone signed off on, which was that he basically went to five different vocal coaches over the course of pre-production for Les Mis. No. And the thing is, when you go to five different vocal coaches, you're going to get different kinds of technique and approaches, and it's going to fuck up how you sing because everyone has different ways of uh-huh. teaching. 
and different, you know, and it's not that any one teacher is right or wrong, but like you have to find the teacher that fits you, that helps get your instrument to where it needs to be. Yeah. Um, Like it's, I don't know. It's like going to different doctors because you have a cold and one's like, do a homeopathic remedy, take NyQuil, get lots of sleep, do a lot of running, sweat it out, eat it up. Like, it, I'm like, what are we doing here? Um, But Tom Hooper's a hack and gladly he's been sent out to director jail for being a hack. But I do think if Russell Crowe had done this movie with either Sam Mendes or Tim Burton and like just stuck with one vocal coach, he would have been nice and would have been quite scary. Colette, Tony Collette can do absolutely anything. She would have been a more, her love it would have been more like the stage version, which is a little battier, a little more sinister and definitely a bigger voice. Yeah, because I noticed Helena Bonham Carter was a little more subdued. It yes. was a little more internalized. And I was like, girl, got, show me expression. Show me something. Because yeah. there was one moment, though. When was it? Uh, during Epiphany, when he, like, puts her in the chair and, like, has his razor towards her. That I couldn't tell if she was turned on or scared or both or neither. I mean, there was. There's John, Riley, John Riley. John yeah. Riley. Why do you talk like you've never been alive? Both no, things can be true. No, That's no, I'm but experience, boo. To go, but to continue on to my point before you so <laughs> rudely interrupted me. What can I say? I'm rude. She, it seemed like, I guess, I mean, I guess because of what you just told us about the berating uh, from Tim Burton and everything, like she may have been like so spent with emotion that she didn't really show anything. Um, yeah, it's also the style of this movie. And like Tim Burton is not the most overly emotional director, especially as he went on with his career. Uh, I mean, movies like Edward Scissorhands, which are, you know, one of his more emotional movies, it's a very quiet, subdued sadness. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's more Johnny Depp's pouty, pouty face. And I mean, I don't even remember if Winona cries in that movie. I feel like she's always on the verge of tears in that movie, but she never actually cries, cries. Like Tim Burton's like, I'm more interested in how the world is crushing you to whisper. Like everything is just so immense and upsetting that you are pale and sad and whisper all the time. Like that's his aesthetic. Well, and- yeah, but there's moments in this movie that like, yeah, that they are saying things that you would imagine you would have a mischievous smile or something, you know, like, hey, let's murder people and turn them into pies. That's yeah. fun, right. <laughs> and they they are blank faced though when they say that and oh, yeah. i'm like okay but i mean that that's just a little that's why i was just like i need more information about mrs lovett because sure. helen is not giving me anything there's this- well we'll get to all of that because you're you are correct in all of that and i will say on my recent rewatch of it i do agree with you on some of those points there are some things from like much as i love what helen is doing in this movie and what johnny's doing and what tim's doing like there are moments where it's like i would like a little more gumption here but that's uh that's a story that we will talk about in just a second another point i wanted to just say to clear the air for her and her reputation uh you are correct that anne hathaway was considered for joanna and then tim burton said ah let's get i want to know about it yeah yeah and then you said well could she have sung this and the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, fun fact, she was cast 
as Christine for the Phantom movie, but she was under contract with Disney to do Princess Diaries 2 and had to drop out. And that's when Miss Rossum, if you're nasty, came in. Okay. I mean, it's also, I don't know if they may have, like, is this how it's written? What like do you mean? the movie, uh, Greenfinch and Lindenford, like in this movie, is it how it's written? Or because di- I know, um, Sondheim tweaked it some and then there's some other tweaks happening like did they make it go higher or something for this actress or no it's 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 always that high and it's usually done a little more lyrically all the singing in Sweeney Todd on stage is usually done a bit more operatically which is another point I'll make when we talk about the stage show as well for a little bit um none of the keys I think are changed in this movie all the tweaks that Sondheim made were either trims or a few lyric rewrites to adjust for how the story is being told yeah yeah there's a lyric rewrite in poor thing there's another lyric rewrite um i want to say it's in pretty women or maybe it's in the finale i can't remember but there are a couple times uh god that's good i think there's a little bit of a lyrical rewrite nothing major just like a line here or there like got a tweak uh but yeah there's musically speaking this movie does not reimagine the score it's pretty straightforward but there is something about the sound of it though and it might be because it's a movie and they have more instrumentation readily the the style of singing so the style of singing is quieter it is it's a bit more whisper singy which at the time when it came out was super controversial in the theater community a lot of people really hated a a lot of people hated that the onstage chorus got cut and all the ballads got cut and then a lot of people really hated how quiet everyone was singing and we didn't know that six years later Les Mis was going to happen so at the time <laughs> at the time you we were like my god what blasphemy and then Les Mis happens and we're like oh lord oh like, this, really this movie sounds talk? like dream girls compared <laughs> to Les Mis or Rob um was there so to kind of like bridge the gap between show versus movie is there a song though that was cut from the movie that you uh, from the show that you wish was in the movie yeah there's one number in particular that i just would have really loved to have seen because it's so cinematic so i also say i am someone who understands why the ballads were cut originally they were cut because johnny depp's daughter got sick and they had to halt production for like two weeks well, he went and, you know, was in the hospital with her and sort of tended to her. Like, yeah, it, like it got it was very serious. Yeah. She was she was deathly ill. And as you mentioned in, the, in your previous episode on this, that's why Anthony Head is there. He was one of the ghosts that was going to be singing all the ballads, as was Christopher Lee. Uh, a bunch of, you know, Burton favorites who were classic English actors were going to sort of have these cameos in the movie and then be the singing chorus. And I've read the screenplay, the shooting draft that had the ballads in there and uh the opening ballad would have honestly probably fucking slayed and then maybe the closing ballad but all the other times that it was in there i'm like oh people would have laughed this off the screen uh because it those those ballads uh stop the action every time in the show and it's fine again on stage because you have you you have the allowance of time and because you know that it's all fake you can have this sort of structure and this thematic music coming in and out in a movie it's like no 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 
keep going, keep, keep moving, fine. keep going, keep moving. So I'm glad I'm, I understand why they were cut. And to this day, no one has given me a proper defense as to how they could have been in the movie. Everyone's just like, well, the ballads are amazing. I'm like, yeah. And how would you have done it? And no one can tell me. That's why I also don't trust theater people when it comes to movie adaptations of stage shows. But I also don't usually trust movie people about stage shows. So here we are. The So to answer your full question. <laughs> I think you did already. You did that. The, the, I, I didn't say what song I wanted in there. Oh, okay. Uh, the song that got cut from the stage that I would have liked to have seen in the movie is City on Fire in Act 2. Basically part of the whole finale sequence, which is um when Anthony removes joanna from the asylum and in the stage show so in the movie when anthony retrieves joanna he leaves mr fogg to be basically devoured by the inmates and they and they escape in the stage show anthony has a pistol and he can't fire because he's a hot little dum-dum and he's like He's like, stop or I'll shoot. Shoot or I will stop. It's a great exchange. And he's like, I can't do it. And Joanna, badass that she is, gets up, grabs the gun, shoots Falk and grabs Anthony and they run out. But because they are in the heat of the moment, the inmates all escape. And so the inmates start singing City on Fire, Rats in the Grass and Lunatics yelling at the moon. It's the end of the world. Yes. And it's very intense. And this is hap- and this is being interwoven with all these things happening. Like it basically it's just nothing but chaos because you have the inmates running the streets of London, singing City on Fire, intercut with Joanna and Anthony running to safety, Joanna singing a little bit from the song Kiss Me, which is also cut in the movie, the beg woman seeing the beetle going into the uh, parlor and singing about him, Lovett and Todd going through the basement searching for Toby. Like, it's just, it's very intense and it's very um, uh, heart-pounding. And I would have loved to have seen that on film. I think it would have been an amazing chase sequence. But I understand why they didn't, especially if it kept in the theme of Tim Burton being like, I really want no choral singing. I wanted to just be the principal singing. Everyone else is basically background. That sounds really cool, though. Oh, yeah, it's fucking awesome. And if I ever get money, I would like to try and do that myself. Just like that That's one scene. Key. Yeah. Yeah, just that one scene. Um, it, I mean, also, like, it includes pieces of music that reference earlier songs in Act 1 that the movie cut. So, like, they can't really have Joanna singing Kiss Me if they cut the song Kiss Me. Also, this movie's version of Joanna is a little different from the stage version. She's a little more... Uh, it's The movie does not make it that that Joanna loves Anthony. They make it that she's like, I need a way out, and this hot uh-huh. dum-dum likes me. Here we go. And they also show that, you know, being in an asylum for a couple of months has fucking ruined her. Yeah, I'm, how much time is supposed to pass during this? Is it like a couple of years from like no, not, the... a, not a couple of years? Um, I would as my assumption has always been like between a little priest and when the judge returns. My assumption has always been like six months. Um, not enough. I'm building up their clout and everything, and yeah. The- There's gotta yeah enough time has to have passed that like the parlor is the the Sweeney's uh Tontorio parlor is doing well the pie shop's doing well enough time has passed that like you know the judge might have forgotten that he would never show up there again or you know he's less angry about it uh Joanna can't have like become a full shell of herself so she can't have been in that asylum for a year it's got to be like just enough time but not that much time okay. 
Well, because, you know, uh, we've talked about the montage during the Joanna reprise, and I'm like, I I know time is passing, but, like, yeah. this could be a day. This could be five months. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think. During this one song. So. Yeah. But I, th- I like that sort of uh, muddledness about it. I, I, they also switch um, the song order for that. They make the Joanna reprise happen before God That's Good, whereas in the stage show, Act 2 opens with God That's Good and then goes into the Joanna reprise. But that's because we had intermission where we could be like, and time has passed. Whereas the movie's like, we need time to pass. Well, yes, that makes sense. Um, I want to talk about By the Sea for a second visually by the scene the song great i love i love it i understand the dream sequence in it and the change of the color filters because that's what tim burton does he does blues for his movie and then golds for like the happier moments or like the stereotypical hollywood moments this one the leading into by the sea when they're at the picnic i just got very angry at the movie this time around because i was just like where are we what is happening this doesn't make sense to me like we're we're under a tree in a field somewhere because whatever oh i always thought it was hyde park that they were in see i thought it would have been more interesting if they were if they never really leave the pie shop or like that area like if they if the beginning of this is in the pie shop or something because yeah. now we're in a new location we're so far away from the grit that is the london that i mean this is what like an hour plus into the movie that yeah. all of a sudden you're introducing this whole new area to me like how dare you <laughs> it's it's also just a very I I don't I do not disagree with you. In this show, it takes place in the living room of uh Love It. You know, the they don't they do not leave the city streets in the show. There is the, no one goes into Hyde Park in the stage show or right. to a field. I mean, I also I do weirdly love the idea of like Love It, Todd and Tobias like going to bath for a, for an afternoon and then coming back later just to just to get some fresh air, but but like if to me them and the picnic portion of it felt like a reshoot or something cuz they were just like well we can't build the rebuild the set cuz now we we literally set it on fire so yeah i i'm i think it when i watched it again i was trying to think of like what they were going for with it because i what it really but what really bugs me about it is it is a total color contrast to the rest of the movie and that was the other thing too yeah and that and it kind of ruins the fantasy sequence of by the sea mm-hmm. because we've already like our brains have now become confused and adjusted to this new color palette and it would be better if we still were in like the dreary or gray area and then had this sharp contrast that would make it even funnier in my opinion because it would be so much more wildly different but I think what Burton is trying to do is show just how despondent and inside of himself Sweeney is. That, like, there's actually a really beautiful day where they're not in the fucking, you know, rat-infested, shit-stained streets, and he's still just as catatonic there as he is 
anywhere else. So, you know, there's really no hope. I think that's what he's trying to do. How successful he is at that or like what other problems arise because of that is for us to discuss here. And, and I like, do think I, that's what he's trying. I understand all of that. I also had that whole discussion with myself because I am alone. Uh, and so I- You're also a great conversationalist, John. So conversations with yourself, I'm sure are great. Oh, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But the, I understand. I, I, I thought of all of that too, where I'm like, I get it. We're on a date and, you know, she's having the time of her life again, kind of showing emotion, but it's weirdly not <laughs> weird. But um, because we've established already the color palettes, you yes. know, where the, um, when they do the backstory, uh, there was a barber and his wife, all that. That's more of like the golds. That's more of like the brighter colors and everything. Yeah. Um, and then, but we're living in a blue tone world, which I, I just, I, I think. I, okay, so the last time I did this was two years ago. I don't really remember watching a lot more Tim Burton properties in between that time but uh-huh. there's something that i'm like there's just something about the tim burtonness of the blues and like the uh the pure white of the skin and everything that i was just not having this watch like this time around i was just mm-hmm. like can we do something else please i think i think it's harder to take that aesthetic with Sweeney Todd at face value when it's been 16 years since then and he hasn't done different aesthetics and so so yeah it's very easy to lump it in with everything else at the time it's yeah at the time people still were like oh yeah this is the Tim Burton thing he hadn't totally sold out yet with the Alice in Wonderland remake that he did for Disney and then basically became like Mm. a corporate whore I'm trying to think of, like the last movie he did that was like truly colorful because I feel like Sleepy Hollow was the beginning of that new aesthetic where I think it was guys was a colorful movie which was big eyes the one about the painter yeah didn't yeah. see her that, so that one had a okay. that one had a little more it's there was still a little bit of the filters yeah. On for it but like this time around i don't i just i don't know what happened uh, where my brain was this time watching it because then i also still hated the color of the blood it looks too orange like i'm sorry it yeah no it's fine listen i it's one of those things for me where it's i just it's become so part of the movie's identity that i don't hate it and and i actually love how much blood there is it's a very it's a choice it's very much a choice oh i'm not mad about the amount i'm just i'm saying the amount and the color there it's the whole thing is a choice because and that's again that's something a lot of people i think were upset with burton when he made the movie where like everyone always just assumed because sweeney todd is this masterpiece of stage work the second the right director comes along with the right cast this thing is going to sweep the oscars and take america by storm no 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 this has always been an incredible niche work uh the original production despite winning eight tony awards and running for a little over a year did not recoup and in fact not all of its reviews were incredible uh it has taken time for it to gain that reputation in the theater world and 
even now it still has detractors and it has people who have different visions for what would make it sore and there are still people who come to it new and don't really like it and Burton to his credit said I know how I want to do this he had a he had an image he had a style and he stuck with it and the Burton aesthetic is not for everyone it's not an aesthetic that everyone uh will swallow every time lord knows neither one of us will swallow it every time I what he did with Alice in Wonderland was disappointing to say the least but I liked that he kind of for all of this seriousness and the fact that like he doesn't make it broad comedy he still has so much fucking fun with it and I think that comes from the blood as much as anything else just the amount the color and how it comes out of people's bodies. I'm like, people cannot tell me that this man did not have a good time making this movie. Anytime Sweeney slits anyone's throat, that thing comes out like a water sprinkler. And it looks <laughs> and like Annie. Little, yeah, and it looks like little orphan Annie's hair dye. So I mean, don't tell me that Tim Burton does not have a sense of humor, at least for this movie. And also, like, Johnny Depp is so delicate when he's slicing their throats that you're just like, how would this much blood come out? I'm still, I still love this movie. Don't get me wrong. It's just that for whatever reason, this time around, I had a very, like, negative reaction to things that before I don't think really irked me. Mm -hmm. Um, The blood always did. The CGI kind of has irked me. The CGI Uh, has not aged well. I will agree on that. Um, but like, I, there's, there's like the shot of, um, him, like the two of them. And I think it's during my friends where they're in the, you see how tall the room is. Yeah, It's so big and you're like, okay, I'm here for this. When, when they do the Easter egg at the end of a little priest, like Mm -hmm. I, I'm like, okay i'm here for this but then they do there's some weird blocking that happens and like that waltz i will not put that i will not shut up about that waltz it's there's something not right about it and i don't know what it is (laughs) it is very stylized in a way that the rest of that scene is not that waltz yeah Uh, like i think I think they're either they're, they're they might be too stiff or they're too yeah. awkward. Well, so this is this is a scene definitely where I I'm not super into either of their performances, which is a shame because I'm into both of their performances so much. I would say like ninety to ninety five percent of the time. Uh, and this one number is the number where I'm like, I feel like this should have been more fun. But yeah. And 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 again, I know I just talked about how like Burton clearly had fun making the movie. Like that's what the blood is all about. This number is a little too dry. It's a number that needs more um, frivolous energy. You know, these two are getting high off the fumes of their idea. That's what's leading to this wordplay of a number. Granted, you know, you go the opposite end of the spectrum with that, and you get Annalie Ashford and Josh Groban in the current production, where that's all they do is it's just like crack each other up there's still got to be a danger and a sexual energy to it i right. mean my opinion and it's not i'm not alone in this a few of our opinions is like after that number ends sweeney went and banged mrs lovett's brains out and it's the only time he probably ever fucked her but he did 
and because it's they're not, so horny for the plan. Yes, he's so horny for the plan. Yeah, and 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 that is you know what is keeping her holding on to him for all the second half of the story because of like finally he gave in and I always wanted him and he gave in and it actually was just as good as I always hoped. And if I just hold on a little bit longer, it'll happen again. Um, I just I just need one more amazing plan that'll snap him out of it. Well, so there's something about Johnny Depp's performance during Epiphany where he's having fun. You see him, especially when he's out in the street. You say, you sir, how about a shave? You know, there he's he's energetic. And then you get to a little priest, and I mean, he kind of is, but like not at the same time and she's kind of not at the same like they're they're play acting but they're doing it a little too uh politely if that makes sense like yeah, they need I, like a they need a mischievous smile they need like a like they need to be enjoying themselves a little yeah. bit uh it's it's a moment where they need to be enjoying themselves for sure i totally hear you on that there's so much that Johnny Depp does in this movie that I am so that I sign on so hard on. Uh, I I I think that this movie, of all the productions I have seen, this movie nails the judge's death in a way that no other production ever has. And I think part of that is what Johnny Depp does with it. I think it's how Tim Burton films it. There are moments in this movie that where Burton nails the assignment so hard that I can forgive him for other things like starting by the sea randomly on a hill in Hyde Park, like the kind of awkward waltz, because the way he films my friends is pretty fucking incredible and, and perfect. The way he films the, 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 the final pretty wal- women as well. Like, the, the Oh yeah. Of that also, I mean, and speaking, so speaking of them waltzing in priest, while that waltz is kind of stiff, the way they waltz in the finale is pretty great. And there's a shot that Burton has that I am obsessed with. And I'm like, I'm glad he directed this movie if only for this one shot. And it's them waltzing closer to the furnace. And he's got one close up of their feet as they slide past Lucy's dead body. And that it's, it's uh, 0.5 yeah. seconds, but that shot is incredible. I, it still, is... I, I still don't like the CGI death of love it. Personally. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that in your last episode where you said it would be better if we just, Heard her screaming and the doors closed. Like, like yeah. we didn't, we don't see Beetle die. We see his corpse come down and everything. And like, yeah. that's when Toby. Um, yeah. Well, the, Toby wants, wants to get out that I'll say that also is in the stage show. That's a, that jump scare is in the stage show and it's a good jump scare except for the current production. But uh, I, I, the f- interesting thing is I'm, <sighs> I'm getting all these floods of memories coming back to me, John, from 2007 of like the message boards when this movie was coming out and people analyzing every frame of the trailer, people, you know, (laughs) dissecting any early reports. And one of the earliest reports of the movie was a just how much blood there was and two, Lovett's death, which now because the CGI has we've our CGI has progressed so far, it looks very cheap and Mm -hmm. very CD-ROM-y. At the time, it really fucking scarred people. They were like, oh my god, that destroyed me. But that just sort of tells you where we were in terms of visuals at at the time. Um, And people weren't expecting it. But it is a little... It is a little much now. I I will agree with you on that. I have one last question. uh, And it's about... And it's another one about 
movie versus show stage version. So you've seen a, a healthy number of productions, we will say. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this the only time Toby's played by a kid? Yeah. I know that the act, so the actor, I did, I did some quick math while, wa- while watching this. The actor was like 14 or 15. Uh, mm-hmm. Ed Sanders is his name. Um, he was around 14, 15 years old when he filmed this. Uh, so he was that old. He was that. Yeah. But and he his was voice like didn't change yet. Good for him. Or wait. 2007 93 nope I'm, i lied he's like 13 okay well, he's okay, and, like and, a teenager and yeah. and, they, and they tell, i think they filmed this in the winter of 06 so and you can tell they're like especially in by the sea he's all of a sudden like a six foot tall man like <laughs> there's a there's a shot when they're on the pier in the fantasy yeah. that i'm just like who are you man child person but <laughs> i I feel like there's just something, especially with uh, Not While I'm Around, it made sense that it's a child. Because, like, you have, because it it feels, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It just felt a little bit more like a, 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 what a kid would say. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, you can't really have a kid do it on stage for many reasons. One, the endurance of doing that show eight times a week is something I don't think any 12 or 13 year old could do, but also just this is actually something where they did change keys. I'm, I'm realizing now because they, they had a kid doing it. So like a lot of the right uh, keys had to get altered for him. Uh, And also in the stage show, it it's really up to the actor and director. If the actor playing Tobias is playing a child or if he's playing a mentally fractured person, uh, this you know, isn't that to, how it was originally intended in in the I believe in the Chris Bond stage play they have Tobias as uh be, actually because Bond wrote the part of Tobias for himself so he Tobias in the in that play and how they adapted it for the original production he is um a sort of mentally stunted young man uh but you know as with every Sondheim show, John, give a director an opportunity and he'll give you a vision. And they'd be like, no, we have got a 25-year-old man playing it, but it's he's a child. Well, because Gaten Matarazzo, and I'm assuming I said his last name correctly, is what, 20? Yeah, uh, maybe like, uh, maybe 21, 22, yeah. Uh, he definitely is playing it like a teenager in, in this current production. So like, so like he is a younger person. Yeah, I feel like though that was one one change that I liked, even though I don't know, like I like I keep saying I don't know the stage version at all. Mm-hmm. I like it that it's a kid because, like, also with Pirelli, it kind of makes sense to have a child Barker to be like, "Oh, look, it's a kid! How cute! Mm-hmm. Oh, he's got long blonde hair! Oh, that's adorable!" Like, there is something a little bit more uh, street urchiny, gimmicky about it that, like. I understood the concept and like, I don't know. I would like to see a production of this, but like, I doubt we ever will because, because um, like you said, the, lo- the logistics of keys and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The thing about an older Tobias who is more childlike in demeanor 
what you gain from it is you gain a more tragic tone to the character because he's such a uh stunted individual and you also get a little bit of danger out of it because it's you're not quite sure what he can understand or what he's even capable of uh whereas a little more straightforward young person like Gaten plays currently or um this boy in the movie there is a sadness the fact that someone so young is being corrupted in all of this because like to- all tobias is guilty of in the entire movie is just always trusting the wrong person right and and putting his faith in the wrong person and then ultimately and... surviving the trauma of that night yeah in the movie they have him survive it in the show he does not in the oh, show shit. yeah so in the show usually what happens in the show <laughs> uh they they change the imagery of it in this in this current production but usually what happens is you know uh tobias goes missing once the beatles body pops out and it's never clear in the stage show if if he's hiding somewhere in the cellar or if he does indeed go down to the sewer system uh which is what the movie does and also something that your that your last episode talked about was like how do they just regularly get to the sewer this is something that's a little historically wibbly wobbly but london is very famous for its underground sewer system and like the connecting tunnels and you can get there through a lot of you know grates from certain buildings and certain streets at that time sweeney todd takes place in 1846 the sewer system did not start getting built for another nine years uh but if like if this were 18 you know 65 they absolutely would have been able to get down there very quickly um and been searching but you know Timey wimey bullshit, whatever. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey shit. <laughs> uh, but in the stage show, eventually, after you know, Lovett is killed and Todd is sitting there with Lucy, and he sings his little reprise of "The Rose of Barber and His Wife." Tobias comes back out with all white hair and has fully snapped. He has white hair from the shock and the trauma, and he has gone from like childlike and stunted to just very much having lost his sense of reality and sanity and he's playing patty cake with himself sees sweeney with the beggar woman and all he and all of a sudden like everything clicks again and he tells sweeney you shouldn't harm nobody and and sweeney pushes him down and he sees the razor and he plays with the razor a little bit like a child and then slits sweeney's throat the police run in with joanna and anthony and tobias tells them that they can't interrupt him his mistress told him that he has to uh, continue grinding the meat for the meat pies there's too much work to be done and that's how it ends him grinding the meat that's um and the- dark as fuck and i i i wish they kept it and well i mean it makes sense why they didn't keep it because they wanted to show tobias has a little like head on his shoulders yeah also that it, in the stage show it goes from there into the final ballad of sweeney todd um which, you know, and because the movie cut all the ballots, they can't really do that. The final image is as grotesque as it is. It is very haunting and a and a good image of sort of of the movie of the movie. Yeah, of the movie. It's a very of Sweeney holding Lucy with just like his blood pouring all over her. It's a very grotesque and haunting image that the whole story is about, which is, you know, it's a line in the show to seek revenge may lead to hell, but everyone does it if seldom as well as Sweeney. And it's just the idea of violence is never the answer and i think what this story tells us is like 
Yeah. And and not just and like not in a hippy dippy sense, just like, sure, okay, you go and you kill the judge. What now? It doesn't bring your wife back to life. Oh, and by the way, while you were so hell bent on killing the judge, you couldn't even recognize when your own wife was standing in front of you. Like, you know, when you have your blinders on, and you're so focused on that kind of revenge, no good actually ever comes out of it. You may get five seconds of euphoria and then all of the house of cards just tumble around you. To quote the ending of another movie we've done on this podcast, Miami Connection, only through the elimination of violence can we achieve world peace. Only through the elimination, elimination of violence. violence. Uh huh. And have you seen it? I have not. I have not. Who says that? Oh, it's a. It's just a title title card. But the um, whole movie is about them fighting. They they are. Sure. They are fighting ninjas the whole movie, and they're a rock band. Um, anyway, that's like Kill Bill opening with "Only through the elimination <laughs> of violence." Sword fight, sword fight, sword fight. Um, exactly. Matt, do you have anything else though you want to talk about before we get to sharp and flat? Um, I hinted, I talked a little bit for a second there about why Sweeney doesn't recognize Lucy at the end with that final death. Um, Sondheim has always said it's difficult on stage to make audiences realize the beggar woman's identity at the exact same time. Like he, he always wanted the entire audience collectively to get it at the same moment. And that just never happens. Um, And he tried adding more material for her before her death and that didn't do it. And so he's like, ah, you know, people either get it or they don't. And the beggar woman is a, has more to do in the stage show and she interacts with other characters than Anthony and Sweeney. She even like interacts with Mrs. Lovett a little bit more in the stage show and no one really pays much mind to her. And so you're always kind of wondering why she's there. And then in act two, you kind of get the idea of, oh, maybe she's the only one who sees everything as it is. And the whole, you know, commentary of that is like, we never pay attention to people who say the correct thing because, you know, she's a lowly beggar woman. No one's ever going to pay attention to what she says. And then the twist that she's actually his wife most people don't see coming. Whereas in the movie, you're like, why is that woman there? No one really knows. And then when, and then I think what Burton does very intelligently is he never shows you her face until that moment. And for someone who might have never seen the show or the movie before that moment, I think a lot of people would see it and go, he's going to recognize it's her. And when he doesn't and instead slits her throat, it actually takes a lot more, that takes more people off guard than recognizing that she's his wife. And I think that's a fun sort of double twist. Actually, during God That's Good, when Mrs. Levitt said, Toby, throw the old woman out and all that, yeah. do we think she knows that that's Lucy? Yeah. The way that Helena Bonham Carter plays it, it absolutely... At least in yeah. the, the movie. Can't speak in the movie. other Lovitz that have played her or yeah. what the script Oh, said. yeah. Well, Lovitz and most Lovitz on stage, mo- I, I say most, uh, have played Lovett as a pr- pretty big sociopath. Uh, you know, charming and funny as shit, but just completely right. But like, not, especially not in, this, about... in this song, or like seeing her throughout the show, like, do they they know yes. it's, it's well? Because when when we get to the end and love, it's in the basement, and the judge is clinging to her dress, and she gets rid of him, and then she sees the beggar woman, and she says, "You can it be." She doesn't say it in a way of like, oh, that pesky old beggar woman. She's like, fuck, Lucy's here. He like he killed Lucy. That must mean he doesn't know. And and so I don't think 
it's in the movie, but in the stage show, and you can hear it on the cast recording when she says, you can it be have all the demons of hell been sent to torment me quick into the oven with her, which that is something I never truly understood where it's like, Oh, she's got to, she's just going to throw her into the oven. That's not how the meat works. Love it. But, uh, well, to get yeah. rid of the body. So faster. Well, so that, and that's something that I always have talked about with love it, that I feel like a lot of theater fans of the show don't really think about when it comes to playing that role and why a lot of people have their favorite love. It's for different reasons. Something that people don't actually think about. Yes, Sweeney does all the killing. Yes, Sweeney's the one who goes stark, raven mad. Lovett's the one who comes up with the idea to turn the victims into meat pies. Lovett is the one who willfully withheld information about Lucy. So Todd would quote unquote forget about her. And Lovett's the one, well, he's the one who does the killing. She's the one who literally strips the meat off their bones and grinds the meat. I was going to say that Lovett's the one that sections the bodies and throws it into the grinder. Yep. Because, I mean, who knows? Yeah, who knows what actually happens? But, like, at least in the movie, you just see limbs. Yeah. And your your goat, I assumed that she was there, like, you know, cutting the arms off and throwing it in and cutting the legs off. Yeah, it's absolutely her. And... The my favorite Lovitz are the ones where I can imagine that actress doing it. However, it gets them there. Like Helena Bonham Carter's Love It. I imagine her doing it like while crying. You know, she's she's doing it for so she can get that scrap of affection again. I don't see her doing it like gleefully, but you know, Angela Lansbury, I had no problem imagining her Love It doing it because human beings are basically like furniture to her. Uh, the Lovitz that I don't like are the ones where I watch them like, I don't know what what would bring you to this moment of grinding human remains up into meat pies. I don't see it happening for you. Conceivably, you know, you and you know you're feeding people themselves. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, th- that's another thing I love is, um, and they, again, because they cut all the choral singing in the movie, in God That's Good on stage, the people who are eating them get more and more feverish for more pies. And so not only are they good, but like it's it's this taste they've never had before. And they're truly turning into animals eating it. And it's just it's a really fucking fun moment, you know? Oh, yeah. What also in Worst Pies in London, it what makes her pies so bad? Is it just the lack of meat or is she just not seasoning it? Is she not using yeah. it? <laughs> well, so, well, so you would also you first of all, you'd also talked about how um Sweeney Todd came to be from the Penny Dreadful and all that whatnot. But Sweeney Todd, the the Penny Dreadful character of Sweeney Todd came from basically just the urban legend that you never knew what was in a meat pie. Because at the time that that was coming out, that Sweeney Todd String of Pearls uh, series, you know, it was the industrial age and, and money was scant everywhere in London. And if you were working class, like you were really just kind of scraping by. And Charles Dickens has a line in, I think it's called the Pickwick Papers, where a character says, like, don't eat a meat pie unless you know the person who's selling it to you, because you don't know what's in there. Like, they can tell you it's, you know, beef, but, you know, for all you know, it's cat or whatever. And then from there, it kind of ran like a stone gathering moss. It was like, well, cat, dog, people. Right. And And, yeah, like I was about to say, Lovett even talks about how her neighbor puts cats Mooney. yeah she puts pussies into pies and i think what makes love it's bad are that um she has no money so she can't buy quality meat got it and you know 
because she can't buy quality meat, no one's buying the pies. And thus, like, she's not making any money. So she doesn't have good quality meat. She doesn't have good quality ingredients. Yeah, she's, she doesn't have anything. Um, but it, with the human remains, she saves money on meat. Uh, and it's also quality. Uh, because I think Justin said in my episode, like, one of the things that makes supposedly human flesh, like, more delicious than other flesh is theoretically human beings take better care of themselves than a lot of other kinds of animals. We put things into our body that flavors our meat in a way that animals don't flavor themselves with. So, like, our meat tastes different. And it's, again, it's also meat that most human beings have never tasted before. So it's a flavor they've never known. And that is something very fascinating to them. So yeah, that's what makes Lovett's pies taste bad is bad meat, bad ingredients, no money. Uh, and cockroaches, lots and lots of cockroaches. <laughs> bad meat, uh, bad bad pizza, not Papa John's. <laughs> tens, tens, tens across the board. Anyway, let's get into Stripe and Flat, shall we? Let's do it. Sharp Flat. So in this section, we're going to highlight some moments, whether or not we talked about it. If we liked it, it's sharp. And if we didn't like it, I thought it could change. It's flat. Also, re-listening to the first chance of this, I realized I've changed that little intro over the over the episodes. So <laughs> love it. Love very, to see it. Very fascinating. So, Matt, the time is yours. What do you want to start with? I want to sharp the orchestra in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's 60 pieces. It sounds fucking awesome. I want to sharp Helena Bonham Carter's boobs. <laughs> okay. And her horniness. She, she, There is a light horniness to her love it, and I'm definitely here for it. I want to sharp uh, the little kid Tobias, who gives one of the few child performances in a movie that I like. Uh, I want to sharp Johnny Depp for pretty much everything but Little Priest. I want to sharp Helena Bonham Carter for everything but Priest and By the Sea. Um, I mean, I like their vo- their vocals in those songs. Yeah, I, I I don't mind the vocals in this movie at all. I think there's some good singing. I mean, I think that Joanna has a very lovely voice. It's very clear, again, that like Tim Burton said, I don't want classical style singing for this movie. So while the Joanna probably could sing Green Finch and Lena Bird, how most sopranos sing it, he's like, no, no, no. It's a small monologue. You're trapped in your room. Uh, I want to sharp how much Tim Burton and Alan Rickman leaned in how much of a fucking lech the judge is my god and alan rickman is perfect he is perfect He's perfect in this movie perfect and timothy spall perfect. yeah i was gonna say i was gonna say timothy spall as well fucking perfect all the harry potter connections timothy spall Helena bonham carter alan rickman kid who plays anthony uh i feel like there's someone else in there Johnny Depp. uh yeah because he's grindelwald technically i think sasha baron cohen is a lot of fun in this movie I want to sharp them just going whole hog on the horror thriller element of it. Something that I don't think a lot of stage productions do because theater people get far too serious about this show and don't have fun with it. I would like to sharp Joanna in this version being like, I'm not in love. I just need to get the fuck out. Doing the whole, I can learn to love you, but please get me out of this hellhole. Yeah. And also them adding the scene when they get from the asylum to Sweeney's place, her being like, so we leave and all of our dreams come true? No, Anthony, the ghosts never go away, you hot dum-dum. Like, <laughs> and she also kind of has a bit of a death wish. Like, you've watched 30 Rock, yes? I actually haven't. Okay. There is a there is a scene later on in the show. I want to say it's like season five or six. So, you know, at this point, like, Tina Fey's Liz Lemon has been through the ringer a million times. And 
Alec Baldwin's Jack brings her to a warehouse at the end of an episode. It's basically because he's like going to show her his new business idea. But she shows up before he tells her anything. She's like, Jack, where are you? You're going to kill me, aren't you? Oh, that's fine. And in my mind, that line is Joanna in the scene where Sweeney's about to kill her. She's like, eh, it's fine. Like, she's just oh! so she's so done with everything that's happened to her at this point that she's just like, because right. usually in the stage show, she's she's fighting and then Lovett's scream from downstairs distracts Todd. And that one moment he looks away, she bolts out the door and finds Anthony because in the stage show, she does love Anthony. It is very like love at first sight. Sondheim doesn't really think much of these lovers. He's like, they're both dum-dums. It's fine. And the movie, because Joanne is like not super into Anthony and also like dead inside, they don't have her run away. She's just sort of like kind of waiting for it. She's like, are you going to do it or not? Like now or never, dude. Shit or get off the dying now? Yeah. Yeah. Am I dying now? Uh, anything else I want to sharp? I mean, there's a lot of small stuff I'd love to sharp. A lot of nuanced takes. Though some Again, those shots that I love. We're going to be on opposite ends of the spectrum about this. I do want to sharp the shadows and the dark lighting in the second half of the movie. The movie gets darker as it continues, especially in the last 20 minutes. Oh, no, I and agree. I love that it. I agree with. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's, it. No, there are other moments I hear you where it's like, I would love to see a little bit more. There are moments of that in the current production as well, where it's like, I get you're trying to do shadows, but can I please see someone's face? The movie, I think, is very good about making sure we do see faces it's tim burton is very much like i don't want you to know where like the wall is and where like the door is i want you to always just be kind of feeling like you are swimming in blackness and i think that's effective most of the time Mm -hmm. yeah i also i also want to sharp again i know tim burton's style is not for everyone and you can definitely watch this movie and be be like oh hello sleepy hollow but I want to sharp Tim Burton creating a world and an atmosphere where singing makes total sense. Something that I think a lot of modern movie musicals are crap at doing. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah. Um, I don't think the movie Les Mis creates a world where singing makes sense. I don't think that Steven Spielberg and West Side Story made a world where singing makes sense. Because a lot of these directors are so hopped up on the Oscar bait of it all of just making movies that are very realistic. How like how many times, John, have you heard when someone's doing a musical, whether it's on stage or on film, we're like, this version, we're going for gritty realism. I'm like, musicals aren't realistic. The emotions are real, but the atmosphere is not. Everything kind of has to be heightened. You need to create a world where I can buy the singing and the dancing. So would you say that, like, in the heights, it makes sense? Sometimes. Okay. I have a lot to unpack with that movie. We have to do another episode on that one. And I might need a therapist in the room with me. (laughs) My issue with In the Heights is not that the singing doesn't make sense. And more just like most of those songs are from different movies. Like every number has its own style and that's great. But like they are all just so jarring. And that screenplay is a disaster. But we digress. Uh, What are your flats then? Well, first of all, my neutral. Oh, Uh, you you have a natural? Yeah, my nat- my one natural is the singing, which I think is very pleasant and very character-based. I understand people's complaints about it being on the more whispery side or Johnny Depp being on the more rock-tinged side. I think it makes sense for this movie, which is a lot more intimate than the stage show. So, you know, there there are times when I would have liked a bit more brass, but I'm not mad about it, especially when there are some truly pathetic singing performances to come in other movies down the road. So that's my natural um the singing my my flats 
a lot of it comes from this most recent rewatch uh them being in hyde park or you know the countryside right before by the sea just because i think it it ruins the surprise of the fantasy sequence color scheme wise yeah nice day out and they're under a tree and you're like what (laughs) yeah yeah i think it would have been actually funnier if they were out and it was gray still and and cloudy and mrs love still had like sunglasses on i think that for me that's a fun little twisted moment of humor i'm gonna flat i used to be okay with it and i'm not really okay with anymore i'm gonna flat sweeney leaving joanna in the chair and telling her to forget his face instead of actually trying to kill her that choice doesn't make sense to me anymore i'm gonna flat i get that tim burton has his view of what makes a beautiful man i would have liked a slightly more roguish anthony if only because like we need somebody who clearly doesn't fit here and anthony has always been that person his last name is hope so like you know that the guy is optimistic and whatnot about the world but the reason why anthony is optimistic about the world is because he's a straight white man who looks like victor garber of course every like nothing has been bad for him no one's trying to rape him at a party no one's trying to send him out on a trumped up charge like i would like someone who doesn't look like he would get pummeled in a locker room i would like someone who would be sort of friends with everyone in high school okay yeah this guy kind of looks unibomber-y yeah and i I don't dislike his performance i think he sings very nice he's a very pretty boy uh it's just a personal thing for me with anthony where it's like i need someone that the audience can all collectively recognize as a hot dum-dum and not a greeter at Hot Topic. Okay, so I still agree with my former sharps and flats, but I have new ones. I got new ones. So last time I only sharped some of the cast. I want to sharp the whole cast this time around. There is no clunker of a performance. No. I, I kind of agree with you with the look of Anthony... My issue is not with the actor. Again, I do think he does a good job. It's more it's of like the look of the character. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Exactly. I understand what you're saying. He does a great job. Um, hold on. I want to actually say his name. <laughs> Give him uh, Jamie Campbell Bauer. I He does a great job. I mean, fucking love Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, oh, yeah. Bow down to Alan Rickman's performance of, in this and everything. Girl, Alan. First, yeah. Alan Rickman. Never bad on a single thing you're right i don't know how that happened (laughs) have you ever seen sense and sensibility i have not that's the one with emma thompson though right emma thompson kate winslet hugh grant he is in my opinion quite sexy in that and weirdly very like that's one of his sweeter roles he plays like a nice man it's it's very odd to see and he's so good at it like i mean we all have seen him as snape and the comp complex nature that he can do with that i love him in dogma Love Actually. Love Actually, yes. And then in this one, he is terrifying. And I sharped him last time, so we're going to keep with that. My other new sharp, this is totally for camp reasons, but it was such a great choice. Pirelli using the Italian flag as his barber's cape. Come on. (laughs) Oh, I also want... I also want to sharp their decision to have Sweeney's victims go down the chute headfirst. Because it, it's feet first on stage for safety reasons. And Tim Burns like, it's a movie. We can do what we want. Let, let them all get hit on the fucking head. And you hear that that splat yeah. and everything. Yeah. Uh, the downside of the barber cape, though, is that with the filters on, it looks like the Italian flag. 
instead of the uh sorry it looks like the irish flag instead of the italian flag because it's more orangey than red but whatever well one could argue that's an easter egg because what is pirelli he's not italian is he he's but he's british he's not irish oh he they make him british they make him cocky in the movie he's irish in the stage show got it well then maybe that is an easter egg another easter egg to the stage version like the nah, end- nah, you're right. It was a bad filter job. Um, I also do want to sharp some of the production design. Like, I love the pie shop, and I love the room above. I I love pretty much all the production design. The CGI is something I don't like. Uh, so I I will I will flat the CGI, but sharp the production design. Well, so like my new flat is for the by the sea picnic. Like that, I didn't like. Yeah. I didn't like when the camera speeds through London. Oh, I like that. But I'm I'm a I'm a basic ass whore. So but I, I, I mean that th- might that's be, a speedy thing works for me. But I think the speedy thing is more for the CGI of it than the production of it. But like fuck, that fucking window in his loft apartment thing. Uh, that is perfection. Um and then my new flats the filters. I didn't flat them really the last time. I only flatted the blood, but I think mm-hmm. the filters caused a lot of issues. Like I said, the by the sea picnic. There's also something else about by the sea, and I didn't write it down. My other flat is for Sweeney's wig. It was. It it was it was. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good. It's not the best wig in the world, but it's. It's what it do. I I also I will say I do still love the touch that even in her fantasy, uh, Sweeney Todd is. Oh, that's it. Yeah, not totally into it. And I I part of me is like it's just funny that you know that's all she can imagine him has is that sullen. But it's also like yeah, why wouldn't he be sullen in her fantasy if she love if she's in love with him now as he is, he would be like that in her fantasy too. That was the other thing in the fantasy portion of By the Sea. I am flatting that. Her singing I do and her saying I do don't sync up. I mean, I know it's two separate things, but like, come on, it's in the fucking song. Yeah, it would be nice. It's That's similar to me of Tom Hooper not having Hugh Jackman ripping up Valjean's parole notice at the end of Soliloquy on the strikes of the chorus. It's some people just know what has to happen in a musical moment and some people don't right but like Uh, it's literally like she says it and then she sings it like not even 10 seconds later like less than that does the speaking happen before the singing i i thought it was she sings i do and i do have her spoken i do is sort of like echoed after that am i making that up I don't remember which is which. I would rather it sync up and have her sing the I do because we're in a fucking movie. I agree with you, John. I'm just getting caught up in the deets. But I I agree. I hear you and I do agree with you on that one. I think it would be nice to have that sync up. Because like, you know, like you said, uh, and we said in the first chance as well, Tim Burton, you know, was like, we're in a movie. Let's have them fall headfirst. So like you're in a movie it's a dream sequence. Have her sing I do who or whatever. Or I would I would rather that she say I that she would say I do in the scene, but we don't hear it. It's just it just that might also up perfectly with the voiceover. That's what I would like. That might also be it that like you can hear them have dialogue while she's singing. Yeah. So, yeah, 
Uh, would you add any of the songs to your wife's playlist? I mean, I listen to this album all the time. I yeah, I, I listen to Sweeney Todd pretty constantly. The one song that I don't listen to on its own is "Wait," but it has to be there because otherwise, there's no reason for Sweeney to savor the killing of the judge the first time that gets away from him. Mm-hmm. Not I mean, because uh, that's something you and your guests last time were like, "Why does he not do it immediately?" It's like because dipshit mrs lovett's like hey 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 wait it out save uh, okay and so and so that's when he has the racers he's like he's like yeah don't rush this it can't be taken in haste and he's like great so like he plays with his as sondheim says he plays with his food and he learns his lesson which is why the next time he goes in for the kill pretty quickly uh and, and I, I just love how they do the judge's death in this movie i love johnny's face i love how they this time he just fucking stabs him it's so, and the recognition that Alan Rickman all of a sudden realizes it's just, oh, good, Sean, my God. I agree. I mean, I understand, because I even said it last time, that if he were to do it fast enough, we would only have like a 30-minute piece <laughs> or yeah. something. So you need the drama and the thing to build out. Plus, when he recognizes him, and it's like, I think it's the loudest moment of the whole movie where... Sweeney Todd shouts his name, Benjamin Barker. Like, that is cinema. Margot Robbie taking her foot out of the shoe in Barbie and it still being in the foot shape. That was cinema. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Depp shouting, Benjamin Barker, is cinema. cinema. It is cinema. And that blood hitting the window. That is the cum shot to end all cum shots, John. And on that note, Matt, we're done with the episode. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. I hope I haven't taken up too much of your time. Oh, it's always a pleasure. You did almost kill me there uh, at this point. Uh, Matt, what do you have to say? Gotta stay on theme, babe. True. Uh, Matt, what do you have to plug or promote? Uh, My podcast, Broadway Breakdown, is available wherever you listen to podcasts. I know I've been teasing it the last couple of times. We are starting to record the new series, Problematic, uh, in the next week or two. So episodes should be coming out shortly. I actually, John, have a possible assignment for you but i'm still debating if this is what i want you to do or not because it's something i know you've seen before and it's a matter of like can i ask john to do it again i'll tell you once we stop recording okay Uh, but yeah i'm i'm toying with it because it's technically not a stage show it was at one point but it didn't start that way i'm excited for this Ooh, uh the series should be coming out either around now or like a week from now uh, based on based on how recordings are going if you played Toby in a production of Sweeney Todd and you were a child, I'd like to hear about it. You can email me at buttersongpod at gmail.com. Also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at buttersongpod. Yes, I'm still on Twitter. Yes, I'm still calling it Twitter because it's still fucking Twitter. Um, yeah. It's the only thing people are willing to dead name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about Sweeney Todd? I mean, this is the second time we're doing it on the podcast. Obviously, I still... I can critique it, and I wasn't so much John Riley's Sorbet this time, but no, I, you stood, you stood by it. You were ice cream throat. today. I was, I, I was ice fucking cream. Um, and if you want to be part of next episode's conversation, it's still spooky season, everyone, and we're going to be talking about Monster Mash the movie. <laughs> Woo! I still haven't seen it yet, but I can't believe they made a movie about that song. <laughs> that monster mash.
<laughs> Matt, thank you so much for coming back on. Of course, you'll be back. But I just don't know with what yet. Uh, and everyone, thank you for listening. And bye for now. Bye. Special thanks to Justin Johnson for creating the podcast's artwork and to Nick Bombasino for composing the theme song and the jingles in this podcast. And thank you to CastBox for hosting this podcast. Bye again, everyone, and have a musical day.